Chris McLeish here. Here we are, episode number 24. 24, what a nice number. What a nice number. Yeah. I don't think I know anything significant about This is going to be a recurring theme that we don't know anything for particular numbers. Yeah, I, don't, I can't think of anything off the top of my head about 24, except that was the age I was last year. I am of the opinion, though, that after the car crash of a year that was last year, none of us should age. I agree. Last year didn't count. It didn't. It and didn't now, count. If you've had two birthdays in lockdown, you're now two years younger than you should be. That, exactly. Which is actually quite nice. So really, if you've had two lockdown birthdays, you're winning. Yeah. You're running a life. Um, we need to look at this in an optimistic way. Yeah. <laughs> How have you been? I've been good. 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 Good things. What, how about you? Well, you know, uh, just <laughs> getting by, no props. Just getting, getting. Oh, yes. Well, that is all we can ask for Yeah. at this time, really, isn't it? But, but that's, that's nice. Have you been snuggling with cats? Snuggling with cats. We have been having quite a nice time. Trixie is still on the mend from having a dicky tummy. Um, mm-hmm. But she will hopefully get there pretty soon. She's on another dose of antibiotics and she's currently fighting her brother. So she's not oh. down in the dumps <laughs> by any means. That's nice to hear. I don't condone violence, but okay. No, neither do I. He's, but he's like, he's up for it. So it's okay. Okay. <laughs> he's up yeah. for it. He's up for it. That's what he's makes up the difference. That's um, so funny. But yeah, I really haven't been up to an awful lot this week, to be honest with you. That's that's abs- that's absolutely fair. Fair yeah. enough. Well, I've got. I've, I mean, it's nothing personally to do with me, but I've got a quiz question for you. Ooh. Okay. You ready? Yes. Okay. Are you okay? So just pretend this is who wants to be a millionaire, right? And all the lights have gone down. Okay. And we've Ba-da-da. had the beer. There. Yeah. Exactly. So. McLeish, what happened on this day 109 years ago? For all of you out there, this is the 10th of April that we are recording. 10th of April. How many years ago? 109, so 1912. Well, Titanic was 1912. Was it the Titanic? It was the Titanic. Oh my lord. I, in my mind, Titanic sank in, like, October. No, it's... No, no, oh, it no. was April. Dang it. It's because uh, of the iceberg. <laughs> makes me think it must be a colder month. Yes, on this day, 109 years ago, the Titanic started her maiden voyage. Oh, so she didn't sink. She didn't sink. Maybe that's she why the, sh- the date maybe wasn't familiar because she still has a few days left in her. Exactly, yeah, she did. She still had a couple of days to go before yeah. she hit, hit the berg, but... This this time, 109 years ago, she was sailing off from Southampton to Cherbourg. Containing people filled with joy and hope. So excited. Even mm. the ones that were in third class. They were buzzing. Even, even the ones in third class. Well, if James Cameron's film was meant to go by, they were having a rare old time down in the bowels of that ship. Oh, yes. They were spinning about. They were standing on their tippy toes. That's the only bit I remember that bit from that scene. They were spinning it, Berlin round. It actually makes me think of the Don French and Jennifer Saunders spoof of the Titanic. Oh my god. Where what she a literally classic. just starts to spin in the air. 
It's so funny. Also, do you not think, right, just speaking of, like, French and Saunders spoofs, that Jennifer Saunders has an uncanny ability to perfectly imitate whoever it is she's supposed to be playing? Absolutely. She is such a good um, imitator. She really is. I mean, don't get me wrong, Don French, French is fantastic as well, but there's something particular about Jennifer Saunders is that no matter who she is pretending to be, you just see that person. Yeah, I can see it. I can even I can just see her in my mind being Kate Winslet. Exactly. And she nails it. And the other one that always comes to mind was for the comic relief when they did like the spoof of Mamma Mia. And she, she is, was playing Meryl. I, I would so easily believe that Jennifer Saunders <laughs> is Meryl Streep. Or Meryl Streep just dresses up and she is Jennifer Saunders. Can you imagine? Right. What a conspiracy. Have you ever seen Jennifer Saunders and Meryl Streep working together? That is such a good question, by the way. Have you, has anyone, anyone out there ever seen them in the same room? And did you know that Don French was originally up for the role of... Um, what's her name? So there's Donna, and then the one that Julie Walters was. Oh, is it Rosie? Rosie! Rosie. I should have remembered okay. because of Rosie Graham. Um, <laughs> yes. Shout out to Rosie. Rosie. Um, so Dawn French was originally going to be Rosie, or she, but she went in for like a singing session or or an audition. I don't know if she had to audition, and they found out that she couldn't sing a note. Oh, that's unfortunate. So she didn't get it, which like hammers home the theory that Meryl Streep is Jennifer Saunders because Dawn and Jennifer would have been working together. Do you know what I mean? <gasps> that's such a good point. This is my new favorite conspiracy theory. That's an excellent conspiracy theory, and I think we should get this trending. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. I don't think that's particularly fair on the part of like the producers of Mamma Mia, because there was a lot of very questionable singing in that film. You are absolutely correct. I don't want to name names, Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> cough, cough. <laughs> but he was trash. <sighs> Call a spade You'd a spade. think it was one of the things they would have checked, No. You'd think. <laughs> but somehow these people always slip through the net. I, but they seem to do it a lot. They all do. the time. On the plus side, Meryl Streep literally can do nothing wrong. Oh, she genuinely can. She is an incredible she singer. She's an incredible singer. And if I can do the splits mid-air at Meryl Streep's age, as she was in that film, I will be very happy. Well, she's now 71, so however long ago that was. She is never. She absolutely is 71. <gasps> yeah. She looks amazing. Incredible. Oh. Incroyable. Oh, so is Bernadette Peters, Big Bernie. Still does press-ups off stage before going on for a performance. I can't do press-ups. I have never been able to do press-ups. <laughs> and she is, how old is she? 72. How is she no, 72? She's just turned. she's just turned 73. How? Yeah, and she just is absolutely incredible. Every time I, I her. see her, she doesn't seem to age. She looks the same, she's looked the same since she was the witch in Into the Woods when she was three. Yeah. She looks the same. What the hell? I know. What is their secret? I know, press-ups maybe. <laughs> Maybe, <laughs> but I'll never do press. I will never do press ups because I can't. I have the upper body strength of a gnat. I've always been more flexible than I have been strong. But this isn't a podcast about exercise. 
<laughs> yeah, let's not get too let's not get too deep into that. Should we go straight into the hat since it's going to be a long one this let's week? Let's do it. Yes, fire away. <laughs> Dig on in. Just, just to give everyone a heads up prior to the rest of this that it's going to be a long one this week. Hannah and I have both independently reached out to one another to inform that our stories are long. Um, so we are going to fire through the beginning section of the pod to just get straight in. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, this isn't a very... Well, it's not like a stupid question this week. This is kind of like a genuine kind of relevant question to the time, yeah. shall I say. Okay. So this week's question is, how many theatres in Glasgow do you think will be left operating after coronavirus? Oh, Lord. Um... Well, I know our two are. We hope. We hope. Um, although I have some opinions about their plans. The plans to reopen with no reduced capacity. Hmm. Yeah, that's... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in July. Uh, so that will stay open. I reckon the pavilion will survive. I think it will survive because I think it's got... I, know, it's de- I mean, it's definitely got an audience and they can probably do shows that are easier to do than what we get. I've not been in the pavilion for years and years. I think I was a, a literal child the last time I was in the pavilion. Um, I, well, I've never been. It's a very, it's a very pretty building. Yeah, that's important. Yeah, the inside it's kind of the way I describe it. It's a bit like a wedding cake because it's all kind of like pastel pinks and whites. So it's very the only pretty. Time, the only time I've seen in, seen inside the pavilion is a video of an old woman who was drunk being dragged out. It was on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's be honest, that is a sight we have seen too. Many, many a time. Many, many a time. Um, I think in terms of all like your big subsidised theatres like us and the Tron and the Sits, which is currently still going under, uh, undergoing reno- renovations at the time of recording, um, will be fine, but it's your it's your little theatres that are at risk. So ones like Oranmore, Webster's, Cotiers, because they rely so much on they don't have any resident companies mm-hmm. unlike all the other ones. So they rely more on companies coming in and hiring the the theatres. And whilst we can't do that. And also, those all those venues also operate as bars and restaurants. Mm-hmm. So if they can't do that either to full capacity at the minute... Yeah, it's, it'll be a it struggle. Is, it is, yeah, it is leaving a big axe swinging over their heads, which isn't particularly fair, in my opinion, because we spend a lot of our time in those small theatres. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a scary time for them. I it is a scary time. It's just, yeah, it's just a really, it's just a really horrible thought because also if any of them, God forbid, were to close, that would put a lot of companies in Glasgow out of yeah, particularly amateur productions. Yeah, yeah, or any kind of small scale companies because do you really think they are going to be able to afford to hire somewhere like the Kings? It is, it is a really worrying time when you think, just thinking about what, what theatre in Scotland in general is going to look like after this, because yeah, 
we still don't have a date. We still don't have any guidelines. If you're not, yeah. if you're not a, a government subsidised company such as Scottish Ballet, Scottish Opera, Sits, Tron, uh, can't think of any what other ones outside of Glasgow because I'm clearly a terrible at my job. Um, <laughs> these are just ones I'm familiar with. Uh, unless you're that or owned by a big corporate company like ours are. Yeah. It might be a struggle bus. It might be a struggle bus. And particularly a struggle bus for jobbing creatives as we are and many of our friends and colleagues are. Because unless you've already got your foot in the door, chances are they're not going to be hiring anyone new or they'll be trying to keep um, people to a minimum in rehearsal rooms and such like. So... I think I the, the best thing we can probably do as an audience is to support particularly the small venues. Uh, for one thing, their tickets will be more affordable for people who have struggled a little bit through mm-hmm. the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But also, yeah, just trying to find smaller venues and smaller production companies and supporting them as much as possible because they're the ones that are going to really, really need it. Yeah. So as an audience, we can probably try to rally together to help out as much as possible. And hopefully we'll get jobs soon. Hopefully, you never know. That would be lovely. (laughs) Without further doo-doos, why don't we just fire in with our lengthy lengthy business? A lengthy business today. Good Lord. Okay, so. (laughs) Also, for everyone who isn't aware, it's currently 10 to 10 at night. Yeah. So we are... We're on, we're on a time crunch. We are a bit. I mean, it's fine because you, you come alive the later it gets because clearly you're a vampire. But Well, I am. But I don't know what's wrong with me the past, like, three days. I have been exhausted for three days. I don't know what is up with me. That's but I just feel good. constantly tired. I don't know why. Maybe it's change in weather. Because the weather it has been be. crazy. It snowed today. I know. What the heck? <laughs> It did snow. So weird. Which is weird because I went for, we went for a walk at Gla- at, around Glasgow Green at like 11 o'clock this morning and it was so warm. I was like walking with like my scarf off and my jacket open and then at two o'clock it snowed. <laughs> That's wonderful. It's so weird. I don't get, I don't get it. I, I don't I, understand. I, I, Scot- I don't. Global warming, kids. Global, Global warming. warming. Also, Scotland is the only country in the world where you can experience every single season in one day. Hey, if you come and visit us, we can prove it. Yeah. (laughs) Come and visit Scotland. You never know what to expect. Exactly. You have to, it's so much fun packing. Oh, yes. You have to bring literally everything. Literally your whole wardrobe. Yeah. Snow boots, sandals. Yeah. The whole shebang. Just shoeing. We just expected to bring shoes. Yeah. (laughs) No upper clothing. Oh, Lord. Well, anyway, I for once know that you're first. Yes. Ba ba ba. Yeah. <laughs> so, I am cheating slightly this week. Oh, don't tell anyone. Sorry. But this this isn't a Scottish story. <gasps> sorry. Sorry. I know. I know. But. Where are we going? 
but oh, we're still staying UK. It's just it's England. That's it's just England. That's you know what I mean? <laughs> I didn't mean that to sound derogatory. But it's England. <laughs> um, but there are reasons why I'm doing this story this week because okay. it's one that popped into my head last month to maybe do. And as I was thinking about it, there are various reasons why the universe seemed to be pointing me in the direction of this story this week. But I'll get to that. I'll get wow. to that in a okay. minute. So I'm just going to kick off because it. it'd be a long one. There's a lot to this one. I'm ready. So this is the tale of Joseph Merrick. I don't know that name. Okay, good, because this does have a reveal halfway through it. <gasps> You, you might work out who this is from the introduction-y kind of bit. I think a lot of people know this man, but don't know him by that name. But anyway. Okay. Yeah. So Joseph Carey Merrick was born on the 5th of August, 1862 in Leicester, England. His parents were Joseph Rockley Merrick and Mary Jane. So Merrick also had two siblings, but they did both die at quite a young age um William Arthur his brother died aged four just four mm. um from scarlet fever in 1870 and his sister Marion Eliza died of a condition called myelitis 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 there's a lot of medical work your lettuce <laughs> it's not funny <laughs> I'm not laughing <laughs> Oh, there's... I know, but I am. <laughs> it's, uh, there's a lot of medical words this week. Please bear with me. I um, have faith in you. Thank you. My lettuce, which is an inflammation of the spinal cord, which can lead to problems Aww. with signals in the brain. And she passed away in 1891, aged only 23. It's really sad. It's really sad. Um, Merrick himself, however, was not without his own ailments. So in an 1884 pamphlet about Merrick's early life, it states that it was around five years of age did his skin begin to exhibit signs of a mystery illness. For whatever reason, his skin became very thick and lumpy. As Merrick continued to grow, a significant difference in the length of his arms was noted, as well as an ever-progressing deformity of his feet. Despite this mystery affliction, however, it is said that Merrick uh, enjoyed attending school and he also had a very good relationship with his mother, which is lovely. So... I like that. Yeah, very nice home life. I always sympathise with a mammy's boy. Yeah. Well, this this would be cut short, however. Oh, no. Yeah. And I told you this is a sad one this week. Oh, heads up, pals, this is not a... There are moments of happiness in it, but this is quite a sad one. Um, It would be cut short in 1873, however, as on the 29th of May, she passed away from bronchopneumonia, which is very sad. Um, His father remarried in 1874. Okay, just to sidetrack for a sec. Excuse me, sorry. Sorry. I've had a lot of um, orange lemonade tonight. (laughs) You do you, don't worry about it. Um, But I shouldn't sidetrack because it's a long story, but... See, the, the speed at which Victorians moved on and got remarried, I find... It is alarming. Perplexing. It is very alarming. It is. I understand it was probably for survival, but even still... <laughs> it's a common theme in a lot of the stories. Yeah, I just find it crazy. Yeah. So, his father remarried in 1874, but it was not a happy home life for Merrick. 
uh, both his father and stepmother reportedly did not think twice about insulting him and treating him like a burden. Um, So he found work upon leaving school aged 13, because that was like the common age in the Victorian era to leave school, um, rolling cigars in a factory. There is a machine that does that now. That used to be done by a poor human. Um, However, the increasing deformity of his right hand meant he he no longer had the dexterity to do the job because it's really fiddly, of course. Yeah. So unemployed, he became a hawker, which is kind of like a sort of outdoor travelling salesman type job, sort of. But it is a job that requires you to be able to vocally tout your wares. You're trying to draw in business. Mm -hmm. This would present another difficulty to the young Merrick. His facial deformity now afflicted his speech, rendering it unintelligible to those that were not used to it. And there was also the issue of members of the public being cruel about his physical appearance. So unable to support himself, and after an alleged beating at the hands of his father, he was cast out of the family home. I do not understand families that are like that. I don't either. I just... Ugh. It just doesn't fathom... It, like, it's hard to fathom. Exactly. So there is a little glimmer of hope. Mm-hmm. As his uncle heard about his nephew's plight and he took him into his own home. Nice uncle. Good uncle. Well done. We're proud Good of uncle. you. Yep. So Merrick continued to work as a hawker for the next two years, but with still little success. His license to work in this job would ultimately be revoked, however, due to the increasing public outrage at his physical appearance. Because. Mind your own Victorians, business. Yeah, the Victorians were a nasty bunch. Um. Unfortunately, in a similar situation as to before, Merrick's uncle could not continue to support him financially as he had a young family of his own. Merrick would voluntarily, however, however reluctantly, sign himself into the Leicester Union Workhouse and he was aged only 17 at the time. After spending 12 weeks at the institution, Merrick signed himself out in the hope that he could gain employment elsewhere. This would be in vain, however, and he returned to the workhouse where he would remain for the next four years. So it's believed that it was around 1882 that Merrick had surgery on his face as a profusion from his mouth hindered his speech and was starting to present a difficulty in eating. So it was starting to really interfere um, with sort of like day-to-day life. And this was done in the workhouse hospital. Oh, I can just imagine. Yeah, remember last week when we were talking about icky elf operations? I can imagine that being up there. I remember with, it well. Yeah, not the most hygienic of, of places. So, by this point, Merrick believed that his only opportunity to get out of the workhouse was to become a living exhibit in a freak show. So, Merrick wrote to the man to a man by the name of Sam Tor. So Tor, who was born in 1849 and died in 1923, was an English comedian well-known throughout the music hall circuit. So visiting Merrick at the workhouse, Tor would grant his request for work, believing he could make money off the man as a travelling exhibit. It's just awful. It's really awful. Ugh. 
So Merrick was given a group of managers to oversee his engagement and he would leave the workhouse on the 3rd of August, 1884. So he did get out of the workhouse. That's a good thing. Which is, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Working as a sideshow exhibit, still not, not great. Not so good. Still not, still not a good time. Mm-hmm. So if he was to be a living exhibit, then Merrick was going to need a stage name. So it'd need to be something snappy that would both describe his deformity and draw in crowds. It, in, their gen- in their apparent genius, they thought they had come up with the perfect name for him. And what was this stage name? The Elephant Man. I nailed it. The Elephant Man. So jo- Joseph Merrick is perhaps best known still in public consciousness to this day as the Elephant Man. So sad. It's so sad. So he would be displayed throughout the East Midlands and in London during the winter season. So Merrick's management would be transferred to a man called Tom Norman, a businessman and showman that ran penny gaff shops. Have you heard of this? Absolutely not, but I can imagine what it means. <laughs> it's not the nicest of words, the names, no. but it was, it was a kind of sort of pop-up, what we would deem like a pop-up show. Um, that would be given in empty spaces such as like the back room of a pub or in a small hall. But I'm wondering if that's where we get the colloquialism gaff from, meaning house. That's Yeah, that's true, maybe. Because I, I, I had never heard of this thing, ever, prior no, to I'd... researching this. I wonder if there's like an actual definition of the word gaff. Who knows? But yeah, that, that would, that would, I am Googling it. It would make sense. Oh, the, uh, a metal hook fastened to a pole. <laughs> I don't think that's the same gaff. That's, that's of no use to us. But yeah, but it might make sense that, like, uh, like, a random, maybe using gaff as a place, like a house to go around to, it could be almost yeah. like a, an impromptu party at somebody's house. Yeah, exactly. Something so that like would that. It's really. Makes sense. It's very bizarre. Anyway, so Merrick was exhibited by Norman in an empty shop space on Whitechapel Road in London. We are very familiar with Whitechapel on this podcast as well. Oh, yes. So in an attempt to gather an audience, Norman would say to people in the street, and I quote, Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to introduce Mr. Joseph Merrick, the Elephant Man. Before doing so, I ask you, please, to prepare yourselves. Brace yourselves up to witness one who is the most remarkable human being ever to draw breath of life. And this is cited in The True True History of the Elephant Man, written by Michael Howell and Peter Ford, and that's from the 1992 edition. Just getting my sources in there, you know. (laughs) Quite right. Uh, That university degree's paying off, marvellously, as you can see. (laughs) So it would be after the showman speech did Norman draw back the curtain around Merrick's bed, relaying the tale as to how he came to live with such afflictions, citing an incident that occurred to Merrick's mother whilst expecting him. And this is something I will come back to. Okay. I will come back to at the end. So by all means, this exhibition of Merrick was actually financially successful, particularly due to the sale of an alleged, and I stress alleged, autobiographical pamphlet detailing Merrick's life. Okay. So the shop space in Whitechapel Road was situated across the road from the London Hospital. 
And in hearing about Merrick's unusual afflictions, he would also attract both doctors and medical students. So not only was Merrick displayed as an exhibit, he was also becoming a medical oddity. Which, in these days and even into the 1900s, gawping at somebody who was just gawping? Gawking? I mean... Oggling? I don't know. Um, (laughs) Both those words are interchangeable, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Popping your peepers on somebody who absolutely does not need stared at was so common. And it is just... When you see these um, medical shows from the olden days, <laughs> speaking like 50 years ago, um, it's so horrible to see that doctors would swan in with the students and just be staring at some poor person's affliction, whatever it be. Do you know what um, always comes to mind when you talk about that? You're talking about it being really recent. Do you remember that episode of Call the Midwife? It's like programmes like that where they like bring in you'd see patient, vulnerable patients or terrified patients and then this doctor standing with a group of students going, this is a What's very this? weird case and this. Da, 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 da. And you're like, that's not your job. Yeah. Like, and these are like, people. What do you think's wrong with this person? Like, Yeah. It's absolutely horrific. However, a visitor from the hospital, a house surgeon by the name of Reginald Tuckett, good name. Sure was intrigued by Merrick's condition. So much so that he relayed the story to a senior colleague, a man by the name of Frederick Treves. So one of the three reasons why I did this story this week is because last week you inadvertently quoted Treves. I did. (laughs) And the minute you said that in the story, I was like, is that the same man that treated Joseph Merrick? And it was. Hey, hey. That was one, that's one of the reasons why I thought Universe is telling me to do this this week. This is three weeks running where we've got a strange inadvertent A strange kind of, yeah. So Sir, Fre- Sir Frederick Treves, first baronet, born on the 15th of February 1853 and died on the 7th of December 1923, was an eminent English surgeon and an expert in anatomy. Hence why he was mentioned in last week's episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He is, all, he is known within the field of medicine as furthering the practices of abdominal surgery and in 1888 would perform the first appendiotomy. Yeah? Yeah, sure. Plus, yep, cool. In England. He removed somebody's appendix, basically. Perfect. First person to do it. So he would also be appointed as one of the surgeons to Queen Victoria, <gasps> nonetheless. Yeah. What's she and it's done? also. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know why but he was one of them apparently and he is also cited with saving the life of King Edward the 7th sorry I had to I've, I've, I'd written in Roman numerals apart instead of friggin numbers so I've had it just like <laughs> five six <laughs> it's trying to work out on notes god um, and he suffered from appendicitis and he was successfully operated on by Treves saving his life there you go So it is recorded that Treves first met Merrick in the November of 1884 at a private viewing by Norman. Treves requested, relayed in a message via Tucket, that Merrick come to the hospital for an examination, to which he agreed. So to evade public attention whilst on his way to the hospital, Merrick wore an oversized coat, a cap, and placed a sack over his head in order to cover his face. 
Now, that A, terribly sad, mm-hmm. but B, can't help but think that might have had the opposite effect. Yeah, I would say because so. Because if I saw someone cross the crossing the road next to me, I'd probably go, why has that man got a bag on his head? Yeah, I do think it's like wearing a big sandwich board saying, look over here. It is a little bit. I can understand why he did it, of course, and he was probably terrified, but I'm still like, mm. <laughs> Yeah, it's not It's not the best solution. It's not the... Yeah, exactly. Um, but, any fun fact, this cap and sack is actually still visible at the Royal London Hospital Museum. Oh. Yeah, you can still... It still exists. Well, I think. Um, or from what I read, it still exists. Okay. So you can have a we'll look at what it was worn... By Merrick. So Treve cites Merrick as initially being, quote, shy, confused, not a little frightened, and evidently much cowed. And this is cited in Treve's own 1923 publication, The Elephant Man and Other Reminiscences. What is it for the words tonight? Oh my God. I know. That doesn't really roll off the tongue. <laughs> it doesn't. Um, so Treve's at this point believed that Merrick also lived with some form of mental impairment. He thought that he had some kind of learning disability um, as well. So he measured the circumference of Merrick's head, which was 36 inches. Now, I'm a 38-inch waist, to put it into perspective, and I'm like UK size 16 to 18. That's mad. And that that was the circumference of his skull. It just doesn't bear thinking about the poor man. Um, he also measured his right wrist, which was 12 inches, um, and one of his fingers was five. His skin was also covered in pathiomata, which is a type of benign tumour, and his skin was loose in areas and it caused it to hang from his body, which is also a condition as well, but I didn't write that down because I'm an idiot. Um, Treves also deduced that there were also bone deformities in both legs, his right arm and skull. But there was no deformity in either his left arm or hand. Strange. Could that be to do with blood flow? Maybe. If you look at pictures of Joseph Merrick, you can visibly see that the left side of his body is kind of fine. Strange. Particularly like his sort of left half of his torso, hand and arm. It was maybe very odd. Li- like nerve linked because your mm-hmm. nerves can, are kind of one half, like your body's kind of halved. Yeah, maybe. It's mad. Well, it sounded very impressive and I fully believed you. Yeah. It's like, because I'm saying this because when people get shingles, sometimes the shingles will literally just, there'll be a line. Because it only affects... Oh, that's a very good point. ...attacks the nerves, but doesn't necessarily cross over from one side of the body to the other. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we're doing so well this evening. We are. So, Merrick was presented... <sighs> Grim. Honestly. ...at the Pathological Society of London in Bloomsbury, disliking his experience quite rightly. Yeah. Merrick requests... Yeah. Yeah, he requested that he no longer be examined at the hospital. Treves did acknowledge his wish, however, and they parted ways. And Treves gave Merrick his calling card as a kind of parting, do keep in touch kind of thing. 
So by this point in time, freak shows and the display of so-called human oddities was vastly falling out of favour with the Victorian society. Good. Only took them to 1880s for this to go, oh, maybe this isn't a very nice thing that we're doing. (laughs) Only took them to the mid-1880s, but they got there in the end. So during increased vigilance by the police force, Norman's shop was closed down. Merrick joined a travelling fair in 1885, but this too would be shut down leading Merrick's management to send him on a tour of Europe. This tour, however, did not go as planned. So views around freak shows in mainland Europe were largely similar to that of the British public, and with fairs and the exhibition of oddities being closed at an ever-increasing rate. So they were shutting it down everywhere. It was not... It was being deemed not an acceptable thing to do anymore. So Merrick was abandoned by his new manager in Brussels... And this man stole his savings of fifty pounds, which in twenty eighteen money is approximately five thousand four hundred pounds. Poor guy. Yep. So alone and without help, Merrick would attempt to seek passage from Austin to Dover, but he was refused. Eventually, he managed to gain passage from Antwerp to Harwich in Essex. So Merrick arrived at Liverpool Street Station, London, on the 24th of June, 1886. However, his plight was not over yet. He was unable to gain entry to any of the London workhouses and would be refused help by strangers he approached. As they were both horrified by the sight of the man and they couldn't understand his speech. That's so tragic. Can you just imagine how... Frightened and desperate, he must have been trying to just communicate anything, yeah. like just trying to ask for help. So, terrified and exhausted, Merrick was eventually taken to a police station where it is recorded that he huddled in the corner. <laughs> oh. The police also struggled to understand his speech, and with no form of personal identification on him, they just couldn't work out who he was. The only lead they did have, however, was a calling card. Ding dong, I remember it. Yeah, yeah. So a calling card that was in Merrick's possession for a Dr. Frederick Treves at the London Hospital. After arriving at the station, Treves immediately recognised Merrick and took him back to the hospital where he admitted him with bronchitis. So... Literally, if he that calling card might have like something as simple as that. Yeah. Literally. So Trees determined that Merrick's condition was continually worsening, although his health did improve during his first five months at the hospital. Francis Cargom, president of the hospital committee, had initially praised Treves in his admitting of Merrick to the hospital, but his opinion was beginning to change. So his argument was that the hospital was not equipped to serve the needs of someone in Merrick's condition, i.e. the incurable. But it was only after outcry from the public and extra support from donors did Gom relent. So this meant that Merrick was free to spend his last years as a permanent resident at the hospital. So effectively he got given a home. That's really lovely, but it's such a shame that it's a hospital. I know. 
it's but I suppose it's better than anything he's experienced up largely up until this point. And this outcry from the public, where were the public that were wanting that were willing to help him when he was out on the street? Tell me about it, and I will get to that in a minute. Oh, please so do. <laughs> from here, Merrick and Treves would strike up a friendship. So it's said that Treves visited him daily and would spend a few hours with him on a Sunday. So it's also noted that apparently Merrick was really quite devoutly Christian. Treves came to understand Merrick's speech because obviously he was spending time with them. So he it was literally all just about training your ear to yeah. understanding the way he spoke. So this meant that the men could converse at length. And this is something which apparently absolutely thrilled Merrick. So he could no, have... No surprise. Yeah, he could have like a proper conversation with people. So Treves also came to realise the man that he had once deemed an, and I quote, an imbecile, which was actually a medical term at the time, believe it or not. Horrible word. Absolutely horrible word. Mm-hmm. He came to realise that he was actually highly intelligent and very, very eloquent. And it was these interactions with Merrick made him realise just what a brilliant man he actually was like he was like he was incredibly bright and could read and write and after everyone just presumed yeah that he couldn't yeah because of his his physical appearance yeah 100 percent. which when it comes to books i do too i mean everybody likes a shiny book cover let's be honest absolutely when it comes to humans yep don't do it definitely not don't do it so Merrick is noted as being sensitive and would often show his emotions easily. And this is something that we often think of like is completely unheard of within like the sort of rigidity of Victorian society. Seeing that Merrick was lonely and would often display symptoms of depression, Trees decided to introduce him to a friend of his. So Mrs. Leila Maturin, who is a widow, was briefed by Treves prior to her visit with Merrick, informing her just what to expect when encountering the man. Apparently it was a short visit, however, as it is recorded in Treves' account that Merrick was overcome with emotion upon meeting her as she had been the first woman to smile kindly at him and shake his hand. That is so sad. It's so horrible, but I just, I love, I just, part of me is kind of like, I'm so pleased that woman, even if she was trying, she was trying to hide her, I don't know, revulsion's a strong word, but just, just trying to hide sort of her, her shock at seeing him. Yeah. And just being nice. I'm just like, thank you so much for being a nice person to that man, because he freaking deserved it at this point in his life, but oh. It's a, yeah, I told you this week's a sad story. Yeah. <laughs> so Merrick and Merrick and Maturin remained in contact, however, despite this little short meeting. And the only surviving letter composed by Merrick was actually one that was sent to her. That's still that's the only one that's left written by him. Treves also took Merrick to visit his home and introduce him to his wife, as Merrick had expressed expressed a wish to see quote, a real house. He is also known to have spent his time reading and constructing paper models. Now, I think also everybody thinks of Joseph Merrick as being this really older man. He was only in his early 20s at this time. It's absolutely mad. It's... Yeah. 
he was just a young man. Yeah. But everybody, oh, I think everybody has this vision of him being like in his late thirties, early forties. But yeah. he was very young, very, very, very young man. So the case of Joseph Merrick began to attract the attention within circles of London's high society. Noted actress Madge Kendall was responsible for raising funds and garnering public sympathy for Merrick, although it is actually debated whether they met at all or whether she just tried to like help him. So other members of the public would visit Merrick in his quarters at the hospital, often bringing gifts of photographs and books. All very nice. Now... Mm-hmm. Here it could be argued that things get a little bit morally grey. Okay. Could the question be posed, were the intentions of these members of high society what they ought to have been? And was this merely still the public exhibition of Merrick as an oddity under the guise of charity? Now, this is something uh, which I will talk about at the end of the, sto- the, end of the story fleetingly, but... You do when you read about it. You go all these members of the public that wanted to meet him, and I think genuinely did want to help him, like most of them. But what percentage of the and we're talking like the upper classes here. We're talking about like people with money. Mm-hmm. Like, what percentage of them just wanted to meet him so they could say to their friends that they'd met Joseph Merrick? Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, how much of it, it was is, really self-serving as opposed to absolutely? Kindness, how much kindness? was it? Yeah, how much of it was just to say we oh, we met like we really want to help this man who's had a terrible life up until this point or has suffered a lot, and how many of them were like, we did a cool thing at the weekend? Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, it is. It is a big question. On the 21st of May, 1887, the hospital would receive a royal visit. As the, yeah, as the Prince and Princess of Wales would be in attendance to open new buildings. The Princess expressed the wish to meet Merrick, which she did, giving him the gift of a signed photograph. What a treat. What a treat. What a treat. We have a signed photograph. Um, and she also sent him a Christmas card each year. Well, that's nice. Which is very sweet. See, when I just read the signed photograph thing, I was like, wow. It's so narcissistic. <laughs> Here's the photograph of me. <laughs> oh, God. Um, so another wish of Merrick's was to attend the theatre. Oh, he's got excellent activity tastes. We've already discussed he is, he's a crafty queen. He's all about it. He's a crafty queen. Yeah. Merrick was a crafty queen, 100%. <laughs> I love it. And now he loves a trip to the, the theatre. Exactly. We'd get, I think we'd go on exceptionally well with him. I agree. So Treve organised an opportunity for him to attend the performance of a pantomime at the Theatre Royal Drury Lane. Treves said of Merrick whilst in attendance at the performance, and I quote, the spectacle left him speechless so that if he were spoken to, he took no heed. So he's very much into it. Yeah. Very much into theatre. Which is just so lovely. It's such a lovely thought that he got to do something vaguely, quote-unquote, normal, to use the word loosely. But Merrick's condition did indeed continue to worsen during his four years at the hospital. 
Merrick died on the 11th of April, 1890, aged 27. Tomorrow. Which is 131 years ago tomorrow. So that was another reason why I did this story this week. Because once you mentioned Treves, I looked up Treves to check it was the same person. It was. And when I got on to read about Joseph Merrick, I saw that it would be his anniversary of his death this week. And I knew we usually, we usually record around about Sunday, Monday, around yeah. about the weekend. So I was like, we're going to, it's going to hit round about that. So it's, it's only right that I do it this week. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, it was only 27, very young, but almost kind of understandable yeah. given the extremity of his condition at this time. And he was discovered lying dead across his bed. So it was slightly unexpected. Um, so an inquest was pursued into... D- d- oh, <laughs> Christ on a bike. Oh. Bring, bring. <laughs> an inquest was pursued into determining the cause of death and it was ruled as accidental. Cause of death itself was given as asphyxia, suffocation caused by the weight of his head. Treves himself performed an autopsy on Merrick's body and he ruled that he had died of a dislocated neck. Ugh. That's awful. It's awful. Um, Treves believed that Merrick had died accidentally whilst trying to sleep, quote, like other people. So Merrick would also sleep up, always sleep upright in order to deter suffocation because if he lay down the literal weight of his head was just going to suffocate him. So he would sleep sitting up. That's so awful. It's so awful. So Treves dissected the body, because of course they did, because... The Victorians! Victorians! Um, And he took plaster casts of Merrick's head and his limbs, and he would also mount his skeleton in order to be displayed... I had lots of respect for Mr. Treves up until this point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, d- I suppose the Victorian times, they did strange things to celebrate the dead. They did do that. That's he very may, true. He may have viewed this as a celebration of the man. He might have done. He let's might have done. think of it that Let's try to think of it that way. Yeah, let's try to think of it that way. Um, so Merrick's skeleton actually remains amongst items in the pathology collection at the Royal London Hospital, although it is not on public display. Okay. I believe, from what I read, the most up-to-date stuff that I read, uh, you have to be... You have to, like, book an appointment to see it, and I think you have to have, like, a legit reason as to why you're going to look at it. It's not merely for, like, just to go and have a a look at it um however there have been a few attempts to lobby the hospital to finally give merrick a christian burial because he was such a religious man himself and i think a lot of people think of what use is that skeleton to you anymore exactly exactly why not just like lay him to rest um but none of these attempts have yet succeeded so just what condition did Joseph Merrick live with? And this is what it's going to get really stressful for me. <laughs> I absolutely believe in you. Thanks. Thanks. So some have said that it could have been Mifutsi syndrome or Mifuchi syndrome. 
it's, it's an Italian name. I think it's okay. Mifuchi syndrome, which is benign tumours that grow within bones. Some have also said it's polyostotic fibrous dysplasia, which is also known as Albright's disease. However, the most commonly accepted diagnosis is that of Proteus syndrome and neurofibromatosis. You absolutely killed that. Thank you. Um, the exact cause of his condition, however, is still uncertain to this day. Although, as I'd said previously, one of the most common given reasons at the time was to do with his mother. And this mm. is the Victor like during the Victorian era. So there was a genuine Victorian medical belief that if a mother, whilst carrying a child, received some sort of great shock or fright, it could harm the unborn child. And an oft-cited story is that Merrick's mother was frightened by an elephant at a, like a fair or a zoo, and this is what caused his deformity. I'm not even kidding. They like... This was a genuine Victorian belief that that could happen in pregnancy. It makes for a good story for a backstory of someone who's working uh -huh. in a, a quote-unquote freak show. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I don't really necessarily think it holds any water. Unlike an elephant's trunk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I just, I don't think... No. no, no, just no. No. I, uh, but then again, that's a friggin' Victorians for you, honestly. True. So, lastly, what of Joseph Merrick's legacy? So, Joseph Merrick's life still continues to intrigue people to this day, and he is still very much present within the public consciousness through various means. So, Treve's own 1923 account of his time with Merrick provides some insight as to what sort of a man he was, although some elements have since been disputed. Okay, okay. And in this, this book that Treves wrote, there's also this strange insistence of calling him John rather than Joseph, which nobody really knows is about. That's because it's not... People said, oh, maybe he heard his name wrong... And they were like, but no, there's a signed letter by him and it's Joseph. You can read it. It's Joseph. That's very strange. So nobody really knows what that's all about. But this is an inconsistency that is actually still made by some historians to this day. Weird. That they think is very bizarre. Um, Atom Montague would also release The Elephant Man, A Study in Human Dignity in 1971. And Howell and Ford would release... The true story of the Elephant Man in 1980, and that's the one that was cited within this story this week. Merrick, having been so enraptured with the theatre, would also be the subject of a 1979 play by Bernard Pomerance, simply titled The Elephant Man. And this work would win three Tony Awards and has received notable revivals since. Oh. And I'd be very intrigued to see this play. I because too. It's unique in that it actually does not require the actor portraying Merrick to wear prosthetics. Okay. Instead, it's it, through the voice of like use of voice and physicality, the audience are actually left to determine the severity of Merrick's condition. So the actor just appears as they are, but they portray. That's, that's clever for many reasons. 
But yes. the one I'm thinking of is that it humanizes him. The mm. way that mm-hmm. Joseph was dehumanized in his life by the way he was treated and the way that he was hired for strange means, all that kind of stuff. But having an actor playing him with no prosthetics makes it perfectly clear that you're watching the mm-hmm. story of a human being who was just horrifically yep. treated throughout his life. Yep, absolutely. 100%. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. I love that. Perhaps the most famous depiction of Merrick still to this day is in the 1980 film The Elephant Man, directed by David Lynch. And you want to know the third reason why I did this story this week? is because this film was on BBC4 on Thursday. Whoa! I opened the paper last Saturday or whenever it was to read the TV bit for the coming week. And that was in the friggin' film section. I was like, right. (laughs) It's decided. The universe is telling me I have to do this story this week because the elephant man's on this week. Uh, So a fun fact for you. Yes. Did you know that one of the producers on this film was Mel Brooks? What is he doing making these random films? (laughs) So he actually went uncredited on the film as he feared that people would presume it was a comedy upon seeing his name attached to the project. Well, he's not wrong. He's not wrong at all. (laughs) Yeah. Anytime we've spoken about a bizarre film, like a legit horror film or whatever he's been involved with, we've been like... Is it a comedy though? Yeah. (laughs) It's so weird. It's so weird. I mean, he was a very, he has a very good producer. He's just very good at his job. Yeah. It just so happens that he's perhaps most prolific in terms of sort of like comedy and satire. Mm -hmm. But it's just really, it's very, very odd. So it starred Sir John Hart as Merrick and Sir Anthony Hopkins as Treves. The film would be nominated for eight Academy Awards, but wouldn't win any, which is an absolute abomination, I would like to point out. <laughs> I don't know how that didn't win Best Film. It's oh, Have you ever seen it? I don't think I've seen all of it. I think I've probably seen bits of it. Oh, you need to watch it. It's, yeah. such, it's such a brilliant film, and it's such, it's such a harrowing film. I think a lot of people... I don't know what a lot of people think about it, but I just... It really it is a film that like really gets gets under your skin, and it does. It, I think it's the whole black and white, and the, it just it depicts the Victorian era very, very well. Okay. And it is. It doesn't pull. It doesn't like shy away from the horrific okay. treatment that Merrick. I'm into that. Received and. It's just brilliant. Everything about it is just fantastic. And John Hart gives an absolute powerhouse of a performance as as Merrick. So, another fun fact for you. Do you know what it was this film that would lead to the creation of the Academy Award for Best Makeup? Fantastic. Yeah. So despite this film being lauded for its use use of prosthetics, there was actually no award at the time to give it. It was outcry from within those in the industry that led to the creation of the Best Makeup Award the following year. Because they were like, we think this is really, really good, but we there's nothing we can... Because like, at the time, make it was like a special award given to make it like... For, they didn't have like a, a, a yearly mm-hmm. one. So, there you go. Amazing. 
So the man responsible for Hurt's prosthetic makeup was Christopher Tucker, who took casts directly from the still existing casts of Merrick's head and body. So actually the makeup that you see on screen is meticulously accurate to what Merrick would have looked like because it's taken from his actual head, mm-hmm. effectively. Um, and oh my God, what John Hurt had to wear in that film. It just doesn't bear. Ugh. That's that's a so true great. professional right there. He was great. He was great. Um, so, an- another wee fun fact. Tucker is also responsible for one of the most famous theatrical depictions of a disfigurement. Da, 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 <laughs> oh, that was lovely. I've been told I'm not supposed to sing, but there we are. <laughs> You're also correct. Um, he is actually responsible for the original prosthetic designed for Michael Crawford in the Phantom of the Opera. Yes. Yeah. So he he's he's very good at his job. He is. So there you go. Yeah. Um, I love that. I, I just love that. I don't know why I love that fact. I just feel like it's two things that I'm super interested in, just marrying lovely. Yeah. <laughs> um, the name so was the familiar. Yeah. So, so I feel well, like I, I must know. have heard it from Phantom Facts. You must have heard Yeah. So The Elephant Man is still praised as it was upon its original release in 1980 and led to one of the most famous quotes in cinema history. I am not an animal. I am a human being. I am a man. And that is the tale of Joseph Merrick. Thoroughly enjoyed. Thank you very much. It was Sorry, it was a really depressing one this week, but the but, universe was telling me to do it. Yeah. <laughs> also, celebrate the man. I think that's lovely. That's such a sad life. It's such a sad life. And I think it's one of those things as well. And I mean, I think it's per- obviously perpetuated through like the film and other stuff that he's still called the elephant man i know which in a way is still kind of sad because he had a he had a name it's not like he was nameless he had a name um and he only so briefly went by that name for the show the yeah exactly yeah exactly So. so but yeah so per Poor Mr. Merrick had a hell of a time in his tragically short life. Yeah. It wasn't it, it, it wasn't a good time a good time for him, but I will give the film a go at some stage, for sure. You definitely should you definitely should. Such a a good film. And also, I'm gonna put it out there. Anthony Hopkins, very, very handsome as Frederick Treves in that film. Fascinating. Just saying. Just okay. saying. I know a lot of people go... I know a lot of people think of Anthony Hopkins and automatically go, oh, Hannibal Lecter. But just... He plays it... Oh, he just... He pulls off a Victorian suit very well. <laughs> okay, okay. I'm into that. But also, very good... Like, every single performance in that film is just spot on. It's brilliant. It also very much asks the question blatantly of... Was Treves a good man in allowing high society to come in and meet Merrick? And was that just the same the same thing that had happened to him when he was being a 
as a part of a sideshow. Mm. Was that was he doing the same thing? Except it was in a clean, respectable environment. But is it the same ideology at the end of the well, day? Well, he wasn't profiting in any way, which is automatically that's very true. A difference. Yeah. Um, he maybe thought he was being kind in letting that happen because it provided Joseph with more company. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try my best to see the best in in Treves. Yeah, I absolutely, I absolutely agree, and I I do think that Treves did improve his life dramatically um in every kind of a sense but it is it is a very interesting question yeah like when you think about it it is it is quite intriguing i suppose if he was able to communicate with joseph if joseph was really unhappy with it he would hopefully say and then yeah treves would listen but who knows who knows but magic well, okay, so just for everyone who's unaware, I took a quick toilet break after Hannah's story and my cat stepped on my laptop and stopped recording and I didn't notice until I was three pages into my story. So we are cracking on from the beginning once again. Here we go, take two. You're going to just have to be on tenterhooks until the time comes to see what's going yeah. to happen. Well, I'll be honest, it's less stressful this time round no, though because I know that I know what happens in this first bit. <laughs> True. Um, exactly. I shall tell you the tale of a man once dubbed the most dangerous man in Scotland, Robert Francis Moan. Definitely not don't a, know that name. Not a name I'm familiar with before I did nope. the story. So, nope, nope, nope. Robert Francis Moan Jr. was born in Dundee, 1948. He was recognised as a young child of above average intelligence who didn't find it easy to make friends being a natural introvert. He had a few relationships with girls during his adolescence, but they only ever lasted a matter of weeks before things were eventually called off. His family life was incredibly difficult and likely contributed to his social ineptitude. His mother abandoned the family when Robert was very young, leaving him with his drunken, physically abusive bully boy father, Robert Moan Sr. And from about the age of 12, he was sexually abused by a middle-aged neighbour. Bad person. Terrible, terrible childhood. Bad person. Yeah. But despite his natural smarts, Robert's academic record was poor. At St John's RC Secondary School, where Robert attended for three years from 1959, he was described as, quote, virtually unteachable, with one teacher going so far as to say, quote, it was like having a live hand grenade in the classroom. Now, I'll pretend that I've not said this before to you, but there's a high chance in the 60s that they didn't know about things such as ADHD, any other mm-hmm. kind of behavioural disorders. And if they did, it's probably understood very, very little. Yeah, they probably just presumed that they were like, they just didn't have any discipline or that their parents didn't discipline them properly. And that's exactly. why... There's no clarification as to whether or not... Well, there's, there's no way of knowing if he suffered from this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, anything behavioural. But even if he was just a difficult child because he had a hard childhood, he yeah. didn't have a safe home. Uh, like there's, yeah. there's plenty of reasons why a child could end up like this. Yeah, definitely. It is of no surprise that Robert hated the school 
and was eventually and somewhat inevitably expelled in 1962. A period in, a, in an approved school in London followed, which I think is some kind of like behavioural school. Mm-hmm. However, this didn't last long and he joined the army aged 18, a bitter and disturbed teen. Robert enlisted into the Gordon Highlanders, which is a line infantry regiment of the British Army between 1981 and 1994, and soon found himself posted to Germany with his unit. Whilst there, Robert followed the culture that was instilled within the armed forces at the time, which included drinking incredibly heavily. <sighs> yeah. Slippery uh, slope. He's a apple from the old tree. What's the phrase? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. There we go. There we go. (laughs) By his own account, he was also ostracised by his unit in the army when he agreed to sign statements that resulted in the court-martial and discharge of two soldiers of superior rank. He believed that this was the right thing to do, but as a result, his unit lost trust for him and was threatened with physical harm on multiple occasions. I stand by what I said when we recorded this two minutes ago in that I don't think <laughs> I don't think that's fair. I feel like he thought he was genuinely doing the right thing. Yeah. Like, yeah, I can see where uh, yeah, I can see where you're coming from. Although I have no details as to what it was that these other soldiers did. Perhaps yeah. perhaps it wasn't something that they should have been pulled up for. Who knows? Anyway. It may be for this reason that around the same time Robert applied to be able to carry a personal firearm as was a uh, serviceman's right at the time. But he changed his mind when he discovered that said firearm would have to be under lock and key uh, while in the armoury. So he wanted to have a gun, possibly for personal protection, um, Mm -hmm. but he wouldn't have been able to keep it on his person at all times. His unit was eventually sent to Libya in 1967, but Robert was instead sent back to the UK for further training before being made to join a different unit. Feeling angry and let down by the army, by the time he was back in London, Robert had decided not to follow orders and he left the army for good. Upon his arrival, he immediately went to a gunsmith's where he purchased a single barreled 12-gauge Spanish-made shotgun. Nice to see that even though you've said that once before, it's still a struggle. <laughs> still was a struggle. And I'm going to say it again. I think we're thinking a single gauge, a single barrel 12 gauge Spanish made shotgun is kind of like a, a long baguette. Yeah. Yeah. A dangerous the, baguette. A, a dangerous single and single tube baguette. <laughs> it was an analogy yeah. that worked the first time around, but let's just keep it there. Let's just keep it. Robert returned to Dundee in the last week of October, where his heavy drinking continued, often having a bottle of vodka at breakfast time. Wouldn't recommend. Wouldn't recommend. I mean, I'm not a breakfast person in any way, but I can guarantee if I had a bottle of vodka for for breakfast, I would not make it to lunch. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would be in a heap, covered in puke. Ugh. 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 His time, I tried to think of a word that doesn't make me feel like I'm going to vom, and that was the one I went with. His oh, time was God. either spent in a pub or in a cinema, but he was only in the cinema when waiting for the pubs to open. So he I had mean, a real what, problem. What are you going to do? 
What are you going to do? What are you going to do? His time was split living with his grandmother and sleeping rough after a vicious disagreement with his abusive father. At this time, he also sought help for depression from a variety of Dundee doctors, but he only ever received painkillers as a treatment. So he was failed by the healthcare system, but it was also a time where mental health wasn't necessarily understood. I also just don't understand why if he went to them and said, and like spoke about symptoms of depression, they would prescribe painkillers. I know, that doesn't make any sense. I understand that they didn't get what I, was going yeah, on. I, so yeah, well I totally understand that. But it's not like he was saying, my back's sore. <laughs> yeah, manic, my back, my depression now, my... I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there was a thought there. There was a thought, but let me tell you, it is 11.15 at night. <laughs> <laughs> we are fading fast. <laughs> We're going to power through because there's so much to do. Can, there's so much to we do. We can do it. We can you do, can do it. it. Get yourself sugared up. <laughs> On Halloween in 1967, while staying in the former Mathers Hotel in Dundee, Robert used the collection of painkillers in an attempt to end his life, which was unsuccessful. He was just violently ill. Mm. So he's in a real, real he's bad a, state. He's in a state, yeah. Yeah, he is not a well, a well man. By the next morning, Robert found himself in Dundee's White Horse Inn, which happened to be across the road from St. John's RC Secondary School, the school from which he was expelled. According to Robert, he came to the decision that afternoon to pop in a taxi back to the hotel, gather his bits and bobs and return to the army, ready to face whatever punishment may be coming his way after not following the orders. Mm -hmm. He stepped out of the pub on what was a cold, miserable afternoon got soaked to the skin looking around for a taxi and stopped to stare at the lights of St John's School opposite. His rage was boiling under the surface when he considered how the school had failed him, the army had mistreated him, his mother abandoned him, father abused him, and now he was a miserable young alcoholic dependent. This was obviously a cocktail for absolute disaster. Mm-hmm. The ticking time bomb that was Robert walked back to the hotel and returned to St. John's School donning his Gordon Highlander's private uniform. He had chosen to accessorise the look with a shotgun. The baguette. Robert ran across the road and burst into the school. The first classroom he entered was empty, but the second was the needlework classroom containing 13 girls and their teacher Nanette Hansen. 26-year-old Nanette was Yorkshire-born and was relatively new to the school, having only moved up to Scotland six months before, following her marriage to her husband, Guy, who is a carpet designer in a local factory. In that short time, she had become well-liked by both students and pupils, which is the same thing, so I mean staff and pupils. She was lovely to the kids, very patient, very sweet, and she was also very dedicated to the job, dedicated to the job which obviously is a big tickaroo with the staff. Robert, dressed as a soldier, walked into her classroom carrying a shotgun under his arm. The room was silent. Then after a few seconds, one of the pupils laughed, thinking that someone was playing some sort of bizarre joke. Sadly, it was not a joke. Robert responded to the laughing by firing into a glass door, which injured injured another teacher attempting to intervene before shouting and swearing at the frightened young girls and demanding that they barricade the door 
which they did with their sewing machines. He then sat on the teacher's desk issuing instructions. Robert took ammunition from his pockets and lined it up on the desk, telling the frightened pupils that he would blow their heads off. He then asked each person their age, and when Annette replied that she was 26, Robert said, you're just a pensioner. Now, we are fast approaching where we left off before my recording. Mm -hmm. I realised my mm -hmm. recording wasn't going. I'm still furious. Absolutely. That is an insult and a half. Yes. Pipe down, Robert. I'm practically a corpse, <laughs> based on his, <laughs> his opinions on age. Anywho... He then removed Nanette's glasses, crushed them under his foot. So I shouldn't make a joke of this, but I do have visions of Velma saying that she can't see without her oh, glasses. Oh, God. That's what I have going through <laughs> no. my head. Uh, he would point out, oh. he would point the gun directly in the faces of any pupil who became too hysterical in order to silence them. And he began to ramble about revenge. Throughout all of this, Nanette remained calm, speaking softly to the young man with the gun, and trying to reason with him to let the pupils go, and just to keep her as a hostage before anybody else was hurt. When the other teacher was shot, unbeknownst to Robert, they had raised the alarm, and police had gathered round the school declaring a state of emergency. All other pupils were evacuated, and I believe it was in the thousands, I think it was a big school, mm -hmm. and police made their way to the upper floor in search of Robert. When Robert spotted them, he shot at them and threatened to harm his hostages. Leading a 14-year-old girl to the door with the gun to her head, an increasingly aggressive Robert showed the police that he was very, very serious about his threats. Back in the classroom, Moan called three of the girls out into a separate room where he sexually molested two of them and the other he sexually assaulted and threatened to blow her head off if she did not comply. Oh, so bad. Yeah. Uh, out of nowhere, for no known reason, one of the girls was l released. We don't know why. Uh, Robert then claimed that the only person he would speak to was an old girlfriend called Marion Young, who he'd met four years previously at a youth club. We are finally where we kicked off. Uh, yes. Left off. Okay. Okay. Okay, we're back. Police quickly tracked her down and she agreed to help negotiate without hesitation. Robert had eagerly awaited her arrival washed his face and hair in one of the classroom sinks and sat singing to himself while police conveyed it con, 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 while police brought her to the school. When she arrived, his first words to her were, quote, you thought you were being a brave little girl. How did you know I wouldn't blow your head off? Oh, that's a lovely greeting, that. Yep. Uh, just 75 minutes after Robert had entered the school, Marion was face-to-face -face talking to the young man that she now struggled to recognise. Bravely, both Marion and Nanette had spent the next few minutes talking gently to, to Robert, trying to defuse the situation and to convince him that the hostages needed to be released. He seemed almost disinterested, but allowed Nanette to lead the pupils to the door, where they were let into the corridor, and once clear, they all ran to safety. Good. Nanette... Nanette, sadly, was not allowed to leave with them. Oh, no. Robert asked Nanette for a cigarette. Marion attempted to pick up the shotgun, thinking that he was distracted, and he knocked her to the floor. He then began ranting and aiming the weapon at different parts of the room and each of the captives in turn, all the while asking, 
do, do you think I can do it? Do you want to be a saint? Robert then instructed Nanette to ensure all the curtains in the room were tightly closed, fearful that a police sniper may have him in his sights. As Nanette shut the last curtain that remained open in the room, he took aim and shot her in the back, watching fascinated <gasps> as she slowly dropped to the floor. Although she was not killed outright, Nanette's injuries were extreme. Her oh. spinal cord was near destroyed, and despite the efforts of Marion, who was using her nursing skills because she was a trainee nurse, she tried to save Nanette, uh, but Nanette looked close to death. She pleaded with oh. Robert to allow Nanette to be taken to hospital. Police outside the corridor made the decision to allow ambulance men in after hearing Marion call for help and they were allowed in without any conditions. Indeed, Robert seemed to have lost interest in the entire situation by this time. He sat quietly on the desk with the shotgun on the floor at his feet, alternately singing and laughing in a world of his own as an unconscious Nanette was stretchered out of the classroom and to the Dundee Royal Infirmary. Robert didn't seem to notice when she was taken and offered no resistance when police burst in and handcuffed him. He didn't seem to care at all. What the hell? The pupils who had been held hostage were all examined and fortunately, aside from shock and a few minor cuts, all were otherwise physically unharmed. Sadly, Nanette died at the same hospital while they were all there. Oh. Nanette never regained consciousness and had died with her grieving husband Guy at her bedside. <laughs> Tragically, it was revealed later that Nanette had been in the early stages of pregnancy with her first child. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. God. It's absolutely awful. Oh, poor woman. And I don't know what happened with Guy. I didn't actually look him up, if I'm honest. So I don't know if he went yeah. on to have a family or anything. I don't know. But tragic. 26 years old. That's awful. Robert was taken to a secure facility where he spent the next couple of months being examined by psychiatrists. It was abundantly clear that Robert did not care what happened to him from that point onwards. Psychiatrists diagnosed schizophrenia that had developed insidiously over a couple of years and reported that he was thus insane and unfit to plead. On 23rd of January 1968, in a hearing that lasted just 18 minutes in total, Robert Francis Moore Jr., Moan Jr. appeared at the High Court in Dundee and was ordered to be detained without limit of time at Carstairs Hospital, the main psychiatric, psychiatric care facility located near the village of Carstairs in South Lanarkshire. Robert simply smiled as he looked up and responded, good for you. Yeah, he's definitely not on this planet anymore, is he? Not at all on this planet. The two young women who had ensured the safe release of the pupils of St John's School were commended with a Queen's Honour, with Marion Young being awarded the George Medal and Annette Hansen posthumously receiving the Albert Medal for extraordinary bravery. At a packed funeral attended by more than 300 mourners, tribute was paid to Annette as a, quote, heroine, a martyr who died for those children. Every 1st of November at St John's High School, there was a special mass in memoriam to Nanette. Those involved in the classroom that day, after a while, learnt to live with the memories and trauma of what had happened and pushed the name Robert Moan to the back of their minds as much as possible. If only for a short while. 
Oh, you've got to be kidding me. No, no, no. Oh. Let's fast forward to I told God. you. I told you. This could be three episodes. Fast forward <laughs> to Robert Moan residing within Carstairs in 1976, where he had been for nearly nine years. He is now geriatric at the age of 20 years old, based on his own assessment on what Evidently, old people yes. are. He has long, fair hair and is stockily built. And where he once shunned and rejected any form of learning, he has now settled down to study. He has gained three A-levels and developed an interest in law. And he was even starting a long-distance law degree. Log degree? <laughs> He's studying logs. Log. Fascinating business. He is doing a long-distance law degree with the University of London and would, by his own accounts, spend hours poring over law books in his room. He is still considered a bit of a loner, but was involved in a capacity for writing features for the Carstairs Hospital magazine, The State Observer. Robert was also involved in the hospital's drama group. Okay, this story is borderline bizarre. <laughs> what the hell so is going weird. on? Um, so the drama group was a project implemented, a project implemented by a new doctor to the ward called John Gatia Loig, or something like that. <laughs> Under his new doctor's direction, Robert had also written a one-act play as a contribution that was celebrated by a BBC Scotland Arts Festival and had become a peer tutor, helping educationally challenged patients prepare for their O-levels that they would undertake as part of Carstairs' education programme. So he was doing quite nice business. He was being quite helpful and nice. Yeah. It would appear treatment was going well and would be prepared to move towards being in a different lower, secu lower security facility. But, no. but Robert had an obsession with a fellow patient two years younger than him, uh, so he was 26, he was, he was old, called Thomas McCulloch. Okay. Thomas was a violent and weapon-obsessed drink and drug user who had been sent to Carstairs in 1970 following a bizarre episode where he attempted to murder two staff at a hotel he had just eaten at over an argument about a bread roll. Okay, all right. Mm -hmm. Okay, there's a lot, lot to unpack here. Yes. Hmm. So. What? McCulloch, <laughs> McCulloch, I reckon Thomas McCulloch was furious that he only had one roll with his soup. I mean, that is generally quite stingy if they only give you one roll. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, as someone who doesn't really eat bread, but I still agree. Um, <laughs> <laughs> one of Thomas's what? victims had to have major reconstructive facial surgery after being shot in the face and the other never worked again and after receiving a gun blast to the shoulder oh my god absolutely grim but they both survived okay good his ending up in car stairs was similar to Bob's in that there was a 30 minute siege uh, he was found unfit to plead guilty due to his mental state and sent to Carstairs without limited time. So it was very, very similar circumstances. It's effect yeah, it's effectively exactly the Identical. same case, is it not? <laughs> Pretty much. Soon after meeting, Big Bulbs and Tom had become inseparable. And like any sensible adult male, the friendship quickly progressed into one of a homosexual nature. That's a plot twist I didn't see coming. It absolutely is. 
It's, that's a, that sounds like I was being sarcastic about homosexual relationships, but I do genuinely believe that people are better for it if they just, if if adult men just want to, I don't know. I feel like the world would be better if if, if everyone was if every man was gay. Anyway, <laughs> it's controversial because the human race would end, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Thomas, although the younger man was clearly the dominant one in the relationship, which makes me question what the what the like the wardens were observing. Yeah. <laughs> Who's giving us this yeah, that's information? A very good, that's a very good point, oh, actually. Yes. You don't get much privacy in a jail. <laughs> Although the younger man was... Oh, I've already said that. And he was considered as being sly and manipulative by other patients and nursing staff. So Thomas was a oh. bad boy. He was a bad boy. In 1976, the two had been planning the escape for six months. Oh, dear. Oh, yes. oh no. They used, oh, they're not. They Please are. don't they, say they're they not. Like they used their time in the drama group as a cover-up for making plans. <laughs> Thomas, who had been a painter and decorator before his time in Carstairs, involved himself with the drama group alongside Robert under the cover of a set and props man. He created props that could be used effectively as weapons. <laughs> The cunning pair managed to ingeniously conceal all the items they had collected behind a false wall that they had created in a cupboard in the west wing of the hospital. Oh my god. Okay, who okay, whoever was facilitating that drama group was not doing their job properly. No. Where's the person standing in a white jacket with a clipboard? Exactly. Unacceptable. Um luckily for the men, unlike Belle. She didn't pay heed to the beast when he said, don't go in the West Wing, but nobody checked Indeed. the West Wing. So didn't stumble upon these weapons. Oh my God. They created two wire garrots, a hand axe, several sharp knives, and a short sword, a lengthy rope ladder out of sashes of cord and wooden struts, and they had stolen false beards, moustaches, and bits of uniform from the drama group. Okay, why, 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 why? I, why is there why is there bits of wood and rope and <laughs> bits of metal for a friggin' drama group in a psychiatric hospital? Absolutely, absolutely madness. <laughs> I, I know health and safety wasn't great in the 1970s, but that's besides the point. This is to another level. It's absolutely oh insane. God. The pair had spent months creating forged identity cards Thomas is being a faked building industry of Scotland apprentice scheme inspector card, and which had his picture on it, but the name Sean Collins. And Robert had a picture, a photographic identity card showing the name Thomas Hunt. They had also amassed a torch, two handmade nurses' hats, and £25 in cash they'd managed to amass through visitors and theft from other inmates. At 6pm on the 30th of November 1976, the pair were ready to break free after a read-through of their next planned production, John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men. As the group made their way back to the ward, the lads hung back. Armed and ready, they by all accounts believed that the weapons would be enough to, to be a visual deterrent without actually needing to use them. That was the theory. Okay. Events were to prove otherwise. Oh no. Shortly. Oh, no. I know. Grim. Shortly after 6 pm, they entered a large store come safe cupboard where their supervising nursing officer, Neil McClellan, was talking to another patient, Ian Simpson. 
Robert threw paint stripper into Simpson's eyes, while Thomas did the same to McClellan. The plan was to use the paint stripper to incarcerate any resistant... <laughs> no, to recapacitate... To, huh, to incapacitate any resistance, and the victims would be bound, gagged, and locked in a store cupboard, allowing an unimpeded escape. But both Simpson and McClellan fought back, causing Thomas to attack Simpson from behind with the axe... He struck him so hard, and I'm sorry for the detail, that parts of Simpson's skull were later found intertwined with Robert's blood-stained clothing. Oh, oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh, everything so about that's just horrific. Horrendous. Thomas then turned his attention to Officer McClellan, slashing him with one of his homemade knives. Robert found the keys, which were dropped oh. during the struggle, but, in, but whilst doing so, he noticed that Simpson was reaching for one of the homemade knives, which had also been dropped. Noticing a pitchfork nearby, Robert grabbed oh. it and stabbed Simpson in the chest, leaving the implement sticking oh. out. The, the next, hell? The next part of the escape did go as planned. Robert used the keys to gain access to the nursing office and managed to cut the internal and external telephone lines. But as the pair were about to don the disguises and uniforms that were inte- integral to the escape, Thomas claimed that he was going to go back to the drama room to get the drama room keys. Robert was, res- was surprised by this as the doors were already open. It transpired that Thomas was going back to satisfy his bloodlust because he went back and used a larger axe that he had found and smashed in the heads of the already nearly dead Simpson and McClellan. Oh my God, what he only the stopped. hell? Absolutely awful. He only stopped when both men were clearly dead. That's horrendous. Holy mother of God. Just a second. The deranged man went as far as to remove Simpson's ears and scalp. Oh, no, I don't like that. It's horrible. (laughs) Absolutely horrible. I'm so sorry for the amount of detail. The badly mutilated corpses would not be discovered for nearly another hour. And the nursing officer who found the bodies, John Hughes, described the scene years later in graphic detail. I can tell... That's him scarred for life. Yes. I can tell you what he said if you want me to, or I can skip over it. I mean, you can if you want. You've already okay. told me that he scalped somebody. This is, I mean, this is awful. So it says, I found Neil and knew he was dead as soon as I walked in that room. I bent over Neil and didn't recognise him. I felt a drip on the back of my neck, put my hand to my head. It was Neil's blood dripping from the ceiling. They had hit him so hard with the axe, his blood had sprayed everywhere. His face was blown up with the pressure of the axe and was smothered in blood and fluid. All I could see was bone. The back of his scalp was wide open, where they had used a fireman's axe to slice open his head. I didn't recognise him. He didn't have his glasses on. They were broken and on the ground. Then I saw the little tin he used to keep cigarettes in that he rolled himself. They had cut the back of his belt to take his keys and drop the tin. And that's when it hit me. And what he means by that's when it hit me is what has happened is that two people have attacked him to escape. Yeah, that's barbaric. That's yeah. inhuman behaviour. 
All sympathy that we may have felt for little Robert has is swiftly gone away as quickly gone. as it appeared. <laughs> swiftly, swiftly. By this time, the pair were outside and used their oh. well-constructed rope ladder to scale the outer barbed wire fence. And in the darkness, they found themselves on one of the main roads within the greater hospital precincts. It was time for the ex execution of the next integral part of the escape plan. Robert lay down in the middle of the road as if an accident victim. Thomas oh. stood waving his torch to signal a car to stop. Soon enough, a car did stop. The driver was Robert McCallum. So another blinking Robert. So Robert stopped to give assistance. I'll call him McCallum because that'll kind of keep okay. it clear. It is likely, bearing in mind that what had transpired a few minutes before, that those steps that McCallum took towards the prone figure lying in the middle of the road would have been his last if it hadn't been for yet another twist of events. Before the esca escapees could attack McCallum, a police patrol car was passing the scene and stopped to assist. PC John Gillies and PC George Taylor got out of the car and the pair of, tri of tricksters launched a ferocious attack on the two policemen. Robert armed with the smaller axe and a knife and, Ro and Thomas with the larger axe. McCallum fled in his car, stopping to alert the gatekeeper to the horrific attack that was occurring just a short distance away. PC Gillies sustained serious injuries but survived. PC Taylor was not so lucky and succumbed to a severe axe wound. Oh. Within 40 minutes, three people were dead. They stole away in a police car. Thomas at the helm and Robert attempting to operate the police radio to find out how much the police knew of their escapades, going as far as to feed false information via the radio to, to bamboozle the police. Oh, for God's sake. Yep. They did not get very far in their escape. Perhaps being distracted and erratic, the car skidded off the road into an embankment, uh, totaled to the tippy top, is what I've written. <laughs> <laughs> I've never understood the term totaled, like a car being totaled, so I've said totaled to the tippy top. Uh, Robert, a man who had previously displayed his excellent decision-making skills, I'm sure you'll, you'll agree. Ab absolutely. Yes. Had not strapped himself in and was launched out the windscreen and lay unconscious <laughs> outside for a time. Always wear your seatbelt, kids. 100%. Even if you're trying to escape after murdering three people, <laughs> it's important. Oh, for God's sake. Oh, what? Oh, I, I, this, I, I see what you mean by being a wild ride. Good I know, Lord. I'm so sorry. And I promise you it gets no better. <laughs> this story had to be done in one piece. I really did think I could have separated this into, into three shorter stories. But, but I feel like every single time it just gets crazier and crazier. It is so worth with it. With each twist. It's oh my mental. God. Robert came to, to hear Thomas saying, help me with the prisoner. He was shouting this to two passers-by, William Lennon and Jack McElroy. I think the thinking here is that Thomas was pretending that he had a prisoner and that he was the, he was the operator of the ah. police car. And he was trying to get okay. two men to come closer to help him get Robert. Robert and Thomas then brutally stabbed both men several times, causing severe injuries, and then bundled them into the back of their own van and sped off. However, Thomas had learned nothing from his previous poor driving. Once, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. 
Once clear of the area, Thomas drove into a field near Roberton, never heard of it, after seeing what he wrongfully believed were the lights of a police roadblock ahead. The van became stuck in mud and they had to continue on foot, with Robert stopping periodically to be violently ill after developing a concussion from the crash. This is like the worst getaway ever. It's so mental. The two men in the van. What the hell? Yeah, it it just doesn't get better. The two men in the van at this point were still alive, but they were very badly hurt. Okay, but they were were alive. They're alive. Okay. Heavily bloodstained, soaked to the skin, and still in possession of several dangerous weapons, the bandits chapped on the door of the isolated Townfoot Townfoot Farm Farmhouse. When, okay. <laughs> when the door was opened, the escapees, escapees, the escapees <laughs> burst in. Thomas uh... struggled with the homeowner in the hallway whilst Robert made his way to the living room where the Craig family, including four children, had been watching a St. Andrew's Day Scottish music programme. Robert pulled the phone from the wall and demanded the keys to the family car. They left as soon as they had arrived uh, with keys in hand in what was vehicle number three, despite being only 25 miles from the starting point. Okay, who was driving this time? <laughs> I think it's still Thomas. <laughs> oh my God. Did he have a driver's license? Probably not. If he did, he'd fashioned it in the drama department. Um, oh my oh, God. Trixie just fell off the table. It's all good. Um, I would also like to point out that that family went relatively unscathed. There was a, there was a kerfuffle in the hall but it doesn't appear yeah. that anybody was actually harmed. Okay, good. Yes. Police from all over Lanarkshire and the borders were hunting the pair, as the alarm had been raised by the gatekeeper at Carstairs. The body of Ian Simpson and Neil McClellan had been discovered. PC Gillies and Taylor had been rushed to hospital, where PC Taylor sadly died, as I say. And mm-hmm. the van containing the badly wounded Jack Lennon and Jack McElroy, was that their names earlier? William Lennon. I've changed his name. Uh, And the van containing the badly wounded William Lennon and Jack McElroy was found after the farmhouse owner reported the incident to police. A description of the vehicle... Yeah, so it seems like the two people in the van as well were also okay. they're fine. A description of the vehicle had been circulated and before long, police spotted them driving south at high speed. A pursuit begins... Just north of Carlisle, a police car rammed the side of the getaway car, which crashed into a roundabout a few hundred yards away, just missing another vehicle and coming to a stop. Thomas and Robert came out of the wrecked vehicle and ordered the shaken driver of the car they had narrowly missed to get out. He did so. no. He did do this, but he had the presence of mind to grab the ignition keys as he did. Before the pair could take off in their fourth vehicle of the evening, several armed police arrived and surrounded them. Big Yay. Bobes. Yay, police. Yay. Big Bobes was dragged out struggling, still wielding a knife that a police officer received injuries from to his hand because he grabbed the blade. Oh. He grabbed oh, the blade with no, his no, hand no, no. when trying to no. restrain Robert. Thomas was taken down by two armed officers still in possession of his fireman's ask. Ask? Axe. (laughs) (laughs) This, I'm sure you will agree, is one of the bloodiest nights in Scottish criminal history. 
The three Cumbrian officers who captured the pair were later to receive the Queen's Gallantry Medal for Bravery. Fabulous news. Quite right, too. Three months later, the men appeared in the High Court in Edinburgh where Thomas admitted to killing Ian Simpson, Neil McClellan and George Taylor, and Robert also admitted to a part in the killing of Taylor. The presiding judge said the killings were the, quote, most deliberately brutal murders he had ever dealt with and made legal history by ordering them to remain incarcerated until the day they both were to die. This was Scotland's first ever natural life sentence ever given. Wow. Quite right, too. Quite blinking right. Just saying. Um, Questions were raised about Carstairs when the men were both analysed and deemed sane. Oh. This begs the question, why two sane men were being held in a psychiatric hospital at all. Uh, On top of that, the level of security was scrutinised and an investigation into the access to materials to create weapons was launched. Neither man was ever to return to Carstairs. Thomas ended up in Peterhead Prison and Robert was sent to Perth Prison, both noted as the highest risk type of prisoner possible. So they were classed like prisoner class A, so they were put... Slightly higher security, but it was just standard prison. Yet again, Mm -hmm. one might be led to believe that this was the end of troubles surrounding the Moan name. Are you joking me? No, no, no. (laughs) What did he do now? (laughs) So, Hannah Brown, look around and what do you see? Yes, that's right. The sights and sounds of January 1979. Oh, God. Detective Chief Inspector David Fotheringham of Dundon, Dundon, Dundee CID was making a routine paper sift through of all the daily crime reports and missing persons reports that were, and this was a routine thing that would happen. They are, I think it says that it's, the routine is that they're passed on from the, um, the uniformed section that consider them for further action. So I think they're obsessed, and then if they're not dealt with, they get sent to actual policemen who then think, well, I'll look into this. Cool. I think. One in particular caught his attention, and this was the report of missing 78-year-old Agnes Woff. Agnes was last seen six days before at her home at Grey Memorial House, which is a block of flats at the time, in an area known as No Man's Land. All flat renters at this time in the area were stipulated to be female, uh, but it was frequented by all sorts of unsavoury characters. So this was a block of flats, entirely female, but men would would be there. Come and go, okay. But as a resident, you had to be female. Agnes's flat door was discovered open and the gas fire in the living room on. Her absence was noted by one of the many people who dropped in on her frequently because she was quite popular in the area. Mm -hmm. Hospitals had not seen her, She was frail, it was cold and snowy outside, and, of course, people began to become concerned. Yes. One by one, the flats in the area were searched, and overall the residents were keen to cooperate. Agnes was nowhere to be found. The only flat where no one appeared to be home was one on the ground floor of the block with all the windows blocked. Late that afternoon, a detective forced entry via a window and was immediately met with the familiar, nauseating smell of decomposing flesh. Oh no. Laid out on the bed was the body of a young woman, with signs of being beaten around her face and neck 
with a stocking and electrical cord round her neck. What the hell? Yeah. Across from the bed in the armchairs, either side of the fireplace, were two other women, both elderly, both beaten, and both had stockings knotted tightly round their necks, but they had additionally been tied to the chairs with plastic bags. All three women had been dead for days. The oh, women, God. Yeah. The women were Agnes, the woman that was missing, mm-hmm. 70-year-old Jane Simpson, who was the occupant of the flat, and 29-year-old Catherine Miller. Catherine was positively identified by her husband, who had reported her missing when she failed to come home on the 29th of December, just a week after they were married. Oh, no. Oh, no. That's so sad. Cause of death was ruled to be strangulation. Strangulation. Each woman displayed wounds consistent with the killer having worn a prominent ring. Forensic scientists made a cast and resin model of the mould imprint that could be used as a comparison if an arrest were made. Mm-hmm. Good. Yes. Off we go in search for the Grey Memorial Strangler. Everybody who had been near the women were questioned. One of the first people to be interviewed was the nephew of Agnes, a man known as Sonny. Sonny was vehemently disliked in the area. He was no stranger to abusing his family, but his bullying and violent ways were not just kept within the confines of his family. He had a long criminal record that had begun as a breaker and enterer, petty thuggerer and assaulterer. That's not a very nice man. Nope. He was a dinky human who wasn't against whacking men and women alike. He thoroughly enjoyed picking fights with folks smaller than him as he swaggered his way through town, thumbs in pocket. He had tattoos showing his dedication to the devil, but his favourite tattoo was the TNT poked in ink on his PP. <laughs> yep. That sounds like such a character. Such wow. a man. It didn't take much for the violence to come out, particularly after a bevy. So we're talking oh. a violent, alcoholic man in Dundee. Does this sound familiar? Oh, no. Well, Sonny was Robert Moan's father. Oh, God. <laughs> who was also called Robert Moan. Oh, oh, okay, okay, (laughs) okay. (laughs) There's a lot to take in. There's a lot to take in. Oh, Christ. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) He shall henceforth be known as Moan. So he gets the last name and the son gets the first name. It's the only way because they both got the same name. Yeah. So Moan bragged about his killer son around town, dubbing him the Carstairs Killer. And how much he wanted to be with him in prison. In fact, he had said exactly that the day Agnes was last seen. He was heard boasting that he would become more famous than his son. Oh, God. When questioned, Moan admitted readily that he had been in the flat that afternoon with Jane, Catherine and another man, 22-year-old Stuart Hutton, who was also known as Billy Rebel for a sesh. Oh, so they were there. They were all there for a sesh. Do you know what I mean? They were all there for a sesh. Okay. Moan claimed that he left the flat to get fresh supplies, 
But Hutton, when questioned, told the exact same story. Except that he claimed it was he who went to the shop and not Moan. In fact, Hutton didn't go to the shop at all. He took the money to go bet betting, uh, claiming that he felt this strange feeling in the atmosphere at the flat. And he wasn't mm. keen to return. So he decided to go betting instead of going to the shop for more booze. Police were able to corroborate this story through checks at the betting shop, and he was also satisfactorily alibied for the remainder of the afternoon. So okay. he's clear. Moan was now the prime suspect. He was admittedly there at the crucial time. He was known to be violent to women, and perhaps most importantly, he had boasted he wanted to be more famous than his son. Come on now. <sighs> Moan was questioned at length over, se over several days, and although he never admitted to the murders, he never denied them either. He told one police officer, quote, I don't care for the jungle outside no more. All I live for is to be in there with him. If I was there, I would see he gets everything that's going. Pills, booze, anything, the lot. Uh... Whilst, uh, 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 whilst he was being interviewed, detectives looked to see if he wore a ring with a prominent face, but he didn't. And then they had a breakthrough. Ba -ba -ba. Inquiries revealed that Moan did have a prominent ring, which was a silver band with a large jade stone. It was given to him by his son as a gift. Ha. Moan's okay. house, his sister's house, and the house of his estranged wife in Glasgow were all searched, but no ring was found. Damn it. During all of this, Moan went about his routine completely unconcerned. He even took a trip to Perth prison to visit his son whilst oh, he was God. suspected of a murder. Oh, well, or three. Uh... Although the evidence against Moan was thin at best, an agreement between the police, the Dundee Procurator Fiscal and the Crown Council in Edinburgh was made that there was a borderline case. So they all agreed there was just, there was just enough. Good. Two weeks after the grisly discovery, a warrant was issued and Moan was arrested. When arrested, Moan was wearing the very ring the police had searched for all along. Yay! Ding, ding, he ding. incriminated himself. Woohoo! <laughs> what an idiot. <laughs> so in June 1979, Christop no, Robert Christopher Moan Sr. stood trial at the High Court in Dundee charged with the murders of Agnes, I've already forgotten, Woff, yep. <laughs> Jane Simpson, and Catherine Miller, to which he pleaded not guilty, of course. The of course linchpin of the prosecution evidence was the ring, which matched the wounds perfectly, as well as it having trace evidence of blood. And if that wasn't persuasive enough, one of the trial witnesses was to produce a sensational moment that proved to be damning. Moan's very own daughter, 15-year-old Roseanne, told the court that she had been given the ring for a short while, but Moan asked for it back, stating that it was useful in a fight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no! What an empty. Oh, God. It took what a mere... An what an idiot. It took a mere 75 minutes for the jury to decide that Moan was guilty, passing the mandatory life sentence to him, 
Lord Robertson told the unflinching, unemotional moan, quote, you have been convicted of what I can only describe as a terrible crime. In view of the enormity of the crime, I shall make a recommendation that you serve a minimum of 15 years. Moan replied, would you mind backdating it? Oh, for God, someone slap this man slap him the face. With a ring on. <sighs> With a <laughs> Cocky, oh my God! Cocky, 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 and aggressive to the last. He then struggled with the police constable, taking him down to the cells, assaulted him, and shouted, "Get your hands off me!" What's he angry for? He, he just said he furious. wanted to go to prison. I know. I don't know. He just. Some people are just never happy. Do you know what I mean? Oh, they're just they're not satisfied with anything. No, no, no. He was sent to Craig Inch's prison in Aberdeen. Not the same prison as his son. The fact that that happened, kind of like, I'm quite happy about that. Absolutely. He was hate. Just wait, it gets better. He was hated <laughs> in prison as much as he was outside of prison. He would prey on the smaller, weaker men to satisfy a strange, perverted sexual desire and showboated himself about like a showboat. Three oh. years into his sentence, Robert Christopher Moon Sr., was stabbed to death by a fellow inmate who oh. butchered him with two knives in an eerily similar fashion to his son's crimes. Oh my God. Wow, that's definitely fate having mm -hmm. a wee laugh there. No one was oh. shocked. Fewer people cared. And the inmate who killed him described him as probably the most obnoxious person in the country. There you go. That's quite a claim. Absolutely. Now we are close to the finish line. Don't you worry, Hannah, you can get to bed soon. <laughs> so what of the original men of this tale are Robert Indeed. and Iris Thomas? In 2002, new laws under the European Convention on Human Rights meant the sentences passed down to Robert and Thomas could be reviewed. Both would have become eligible for possible parole by this time which I don't understand having been given a proper life sentence, but whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I don't understand that. By 2005, Thomas was still incarcerated but studying for a law degree and had become a trained counsellor helping other inmates with their personal issues. Have you tried looking in the mirror? <laughs> I was literally <laughs> about to say that. Maybe turn some of that counselling inward yeah. towards Think yourself. Think about your own actions, you big bam. His prisoner category status was downgraded and moves to begin preparing him for release were put into place. He was Are moved... you joking? I am not kidding you on, Hannah Brown. I am telling you the truth. <laughs> There's a reason why these people should never be let out ever again. Never, never. God. He was moved to, a, to an open prison where days out were permitted. He even managed to start up a relationship with 48-year-old Susan Perry. An attempt to release him in 2010 stalled because locals threatened to lynch him. He was, however, <laughs> eventually released on life license, life license in 2011, went on to marry Susan Perry and settled down to a new life in Dundee. Much to the disgust of the families of his victims, a po opposition from senior government figures and angry public protest. Can you blame them? I mean, I mean, fair enough. I'm furious, and this was ten years ago. Uh, nursing officer Wait, Neil. Wait, is he still alive? 
fully alive. Oh my God. Yeah. I hope he never hears this. <laughs> oh God, can you imagine? Don't, don't give out your address. Nursing officer Neil McClellan's son, who said, quote, life should be life. He was sentenced to die in jail and I don't see why that should have changed. He gets another chance, but there are three people in the cemetery who won't get that chance because of what they did. Quite right. Oh. It's a shame. He really shouldn't have been let out. I don't understand it. Especially since he was the one who did most of the actual violence yeah. that night. Robert is still incarcerated and is Scotland's longest serving prisoner. Plans to release him were in place, but authorities held off after concerns were raised about his behaviour. In 1981, his name was amongst those involved in a destructive rooftop protest at Perth Prison. And in 1995, he had six months added onto his life sentence after attacking another prisoner with boiling water. Robert even changed his name to James Smith as he believes that his release is imminent. Mm. Extracts from letters to a pen friend were made public in which he discusses his plans upon release. But never once does he mention regret or sorrow for the victims of his crimes. In fact, he even boasts of how up to 540 people were left traumatised by his crimes and went, on as, and went as far as to award his victims points for their levels of anguish. Oh my God, that's... Disgusting. No, no. Some of his letters made it into a book entitled Carstairs Hospital of Horrors, but even in these letters, he acts a victim of persuasion and pins blame on Thomas. In 2007, one of the schoolgirls, Robert held at gunpoint, and Darcy, spoke out about that afternoon. She said, his face has always haunted me. There isn't a day that goes by when I don't think of him. The memory of him pressing the gun to my head flashes through my mind. He fired the gun. I heard him pull the trigger, but I found out later that the pin missed and it didn't fire a bullet. He didn't think how he was destroying the lives of 14-year-old girls. He didn't care. He should never, ever be released. It's him. It's in him to kill again. Nursing officer who found the bodies of McClellan and Simpson inside the Carstairs said, mm -hmm. Moan is still feeding off the past. He remembers every detail of that day. He gets pleasure from it. I haven't forgotten that day because I was left traumatised. But Moan and McCulloch are like a couple of vultures feeding off the carcass of 1976. They will never change, ever. You cannot rehabilitate these people to go back among human beings. People like them cannot be cured. Son of Neil McClellan again said, I have lived the consequences of what happened since 1976. It has completely altered the life my mother and I would have had. Moan is telling the story that he has been led along and that he was not the main player in this and is still inside. He has got to convince the parole board that he is safe to be released and that he is remorseful, but he is only sorry that he got caught. Oh my God. And that is the story of Thomas, Robert, Robert, the other Robert. Uh, there was a William in there, Nanette, a lot of people were involved in this story, but essentially it's a crazy macabre case of one-upmanship between father and son. Yeah, that's... Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you... 
I could not separate this into three separate stories because it just I can I can understand why now. (laughs) Insanity. I mean that could have been done over three, but it was it just every step where you thought it was coming to an end, something else would happen and it's just insanity. Madness. That's wow. Yeah. (laughs) I don't, I, I don't really know what to say to that. That's a mad story. And the fact that they're both still on this earth is slightly scary. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I disapprove this message. I don't like that they're still around. Um, <laughs> I really don't. I will give thanks to a website. I think it's a blog called thetruecrimeenthusiast.co.uk. I got most of my information from there. And uh, yep. they were very thorough. And I believe they probably used the book that I mentioned at the end, Carstairs Hospital of Horrors. Yeah. I feel, I think that was one of their sources. They haven't written what the other sources are. Um, but yeah, wild. Crazy. Never Crazy. ending. Wow. Once again, as always, thank you so much for listening and uh, bearing with us with some lengthy oh, it's, business. It's- yeah, it's a long one this week. Yes. Thank you if you've made it this far. <laughs> um, I encourage you to please go to Instagram or Facebook to see our reference photos. Um, this is not just a visual medium. You you really need to get the full experience. And to really do that, you need to see the photos. Um, also, please, you- please, if you have... Oh, sorry, you say use. Do you say use? No, I was going to say, do you... What do you mean a visual? It's not just a visual medium. It's not just an audio medium. <laughs> it's also a visual one. I know what I meant. <laughs> uh, and as always, as well, if you can please pop on to Apple Podcasts and give us a star rating, it will hopefully make all the difference. Share our episodes if you feel like you know people who would like this. We are still having a lot of fun doing it and we are finding more and more interesting stories. And we want to share them with as many people as possible. So please just spread the word. Yes, please do. And next week, episode number 25, we are going to be having another guest. Yes, we are. We are. Our wonderful friend and colleague, Mr. Michael Lynch, is going to be joining us next week. Yes. we're going to be doing something a little bit different. Yes, it's going to be a wee departure from the usual by story setup that we have going on. Absolutely. So tune in to next week to see how that goes. <laughs> yeah, wish us luck. Uh, I think it's yeah, going to be great. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but yeah, thank you very much. Was that gothic? A wee bit. <laughs> <laughs>